0: hello and welcome to understanding black britain this easy listening podcast series is designed to help you understand the history of racism what racism looks like today the lived experience how racism affects us What makes us an activist? Who are our allies? And why did they take up the arms in the anti-racism struggle? My name's Oliver Evans, and I'm a community and race relations activist. Episode one, the history of racism. There are considered to be seven pillars to the construct of racism. These pillars are dominance, management, containment, intellectuality, humanity, reality, and erasure. As we go through this series, we will learn how these seven pillars are evident and embedded within the history. Understanding the history of racism is key to not only recognising how racism came about, but how it's evolved through the years. Today, British racism is considered very nuanced, delivered mainly through microaggressions and actions. And it's not always obvious It's very different to old-school racism, a term used today to describe the direct and overt types of racism we see throughout history, including the history of recent decades. It's important to understand the whole of history, from Roman times through to commercial slavery and so on. But importantly, understanding the history of recent decades, of the 70s, the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, the story of black people in Britain stems as far back as Roman times. Britain, part of the Roman Empire, was one of the first recorded European sites to have a large proportion of both free and enslaved Africans. The Empire reached as far as North Africa, but until recently, we didn't have a clear picture of where Africans fitted into Roman times. About a hundred years ago, a document was discovered that listed Roman forts and their occupants. The document is called the Notitia Dignitatum. It clearly tells us that in the 2nd century AD, Broth by Sands in Cumbria was the site of a Roman fort located nearer the west end of Hadrian's Wall. What it also tells us is that there was a unit of soldiers who heralded from the North African provinces of the Roman Empire, places like Morocco, Algeria and Tunisia. The members of this unit are the first recorded black community in British records. It is believed that the black community was in Britain up to 200 years before So what this means is that over 2,000 years ago, black people were in Britain and for the most part were an integrated part of society. The records suggest, Africans in the Roman era didn't just simply occupy Britain, they settled, raised families and prospered here. The Romans were very vocal on their description of foreigners and Britain was not immune from the derogatory descriptions of non-Roman nations. One of the things the Romans were not is racist. There is no evidence that skin colour was something to mark you out in Roman propaganda or culture, and historical findings show us that describing one's skin colour was not routine. For instance, in the depictions of popular Roman figures that came from North Africa regions, it's impossible for us to tell if they were white or black. Another key pit of our history is slavery. Slavery, in its original form, is not from the times that we were all taught at school. The act of enslaving others goes back to the latter first century AD, where African, Middle Eastern and Asian provinces enslaved fellow countrymen and women. This early slavery was known as intercommunal slavery. Intercommunal slavery is where people of the same ethnic origins enslaved each other because one group believed that they held a superiority over the other. There was a view that these chosen differences were ample justification to enslave others. The commercialisation of slavery began with British merchants and traders. Other European countries had already established trade links with Africa, and the idea of African riches and the wealth, status and power that it would bring became too much for the British to ignore. Portuguese settlers were already firmly rooted in African countries and had the backing of the Pope to be exclusive in all African trading. This meant that the British traders who sailed to Africa illegally were considered pirates. They had to fight to reap the rewards and the riches they desired. It was under the Tudors that the British developed their fascination with the African continent and its inhabitants. Those first British traders didn't seek to enslave the local inhabitants. Instead, they brokered trade agreements with tribal kings, primarily for gold. Gold had been kept low Due to the Portuguese monopolising the market in the African gold trade, local tribal leaders and kings realised that trading with the British would help increase the price of gold, and worked closely as partners for years. In 1562, Sir John Hawkins began the commercial sale of slaves. He sailed from Portsmouth to Africa, and during this voyage, he captured 300 Negroes from a Portuguese ship. He then sailed them to the Spanish South American colonies and sold them into slavery, earning himself a huge fortune in the process. What he did was he also showed that there was much, much more money to be made in selling slaves than there was in trading African gold. In all, Over two and a half centuries, Britain traded and transported nearly three and a half million African and West Indian slaves to the Americas and Europe. The slave trade in Britain was run for the benefit of those at the upper echelons of the establishment. The Royal African Company, who invaded and ran the notorious Bunce Island, sold more people into slavery than any other British company and was headed by James, Duke of York, later becoming James II. Enslaved locals were branded with the initials D.O.Y. upon their enslavement, as the slaves themselves were considered property. And the Royal Monopoly shut out independent merchants and traders, the Royal Navy being utilised to ensure that only His Majesty's ships enslaved and transported black people from Africa. These independent traders petitioned Parliament and the King to have access to the slave trade, citing the British notion and the right of freedom. They demanded and ultimately won their freedom to be slave traders. Think about that, they won the freedom to become slave traders. In doing so, they smashed the royal monopoly and turned Britain into the biggest slave trading nation in history. In the early years, up to 40,000 slaves a year were being sent to the Americas and the West Indies. Despite that huge number, it wasn't enough to keep up with demand. So like any company would, traders began streamlining their businesses and inside of 15 years were able to increase that number to 120,000 people a year. The profits of these trades, the profits of selling slaves into the Americas and the West Indies into the Europe market, helped fuel Britain's industrial revolution at the end of the 18th century. By the time of abolition in 1834, Britain had made an historically huge amount of money off the back of slave trading. And actually, open markets became known as labour markets, a term we use today for very different reasons abolition of slavery was in 1834, but the British people and companies in Britain still went on to profit from slaves for years to come because the rest of the Europeans didn't end slavery at the same time. The Victorians, believing that Britain was the only true power in the world, pressured the rest of Europe to abolish slavery and give those slaves freedom. The abolition of slavery didn't come through realisation that people are human beings and have a right to equality and equity. It came about through an agreement to pay compensation. Under the Slave Compensation Act of 1837, slave owners, not the slaves themselves, were paid compensation. Over 46,000 claims were made by British slave owners to claim compensation for financial loss. In total, £20 million was paid out over 40% of the annual treasury income. around about 5% of GDP. To give an idea of how much money that was, 20 million pounds then is over 18 billion pounds in today's money. The government didn't have the money at the time as income tax didn't yet exist. Instead they raised the money through taxes of consumption and borrowed the remaining balance from the international banks to cover the bond. That borrowing was only paid back in 2015. The funds to repay those bonds and the loan were obtained through your taxes. So all of us who paid income tax before 2015 have helped compensate slave owners and their descendants, something I bet you didn't know. As we move forward, we come to 1919 and the British race riots. 1919 saw some of the most intense workers' struggles ever in Britain. Militant readers ran strikes on an almost daily basis. Black labour was paid far lower than white labour, and in turn many white Britons were out of work or striking, refusing to work with blacks. Racism was hugely overt. White mobs attacked black people daily, mostly matron seamen. Five people throughout the race riots of 1919 were killed, lynched by mobs of white, angry workers. In the northeast, Arab stokers signed up to a ship that ran from South Shields near Newcastle. Having gone to the Union office to pay their dues, Union official James Gilroy told the ship's bosses that there would be bloodshed if the Dirty Blacks were hired. The men he referred to were members of his own union. He coerced the ship to hire a new set of white workers, and despite this, a mob of around 150 chased the Arab workers into the area they lived. Upon doing so, around 50 local black people came to their aid and fought with the mob to protect the Arab men. In turn, the authorities called in the army with orders to shoot the black community if required to prevent and end the fighting. Liverpool had the fiercest and most sustained riots of all the cities. On the night of the 5th of June 1919, a black sailor called Charles Wotton sat drinking in a pub, quietly and without incident. Not far off, in another pub, a fight took place in St George's Square, between a rival group of black and Scandinavian men. The police were called and they decided to arrest the black men. Fronting an angry white crowd, they began arresting any black person they could find and targeted Upper Pitt Street. Charles Wooten, a 24 year old ship's fireman from Bermuda lived at number 18. Knowing what was happening, he escaped from his house to try and find safety but he didn't get far before he was spotted and chased about half a mile to the Queen's dock. An eyewitness said that in the violence and the hustle of the crowd, it was impossible to tell if he jumped or if he was thrown into the water. The same witness heard chants of, let him drown, after he was hit on the head by a rock. Charles wutton drowned and died that night, lynched In the days after his death, riots took place all over Liverpool as a result, not by the black community, but by the white community, intent on inflicting the same fate to any other black person they found. As a result, the police arrested and detained over 300 black people for their own safety because they could not control the baying crowd. More riots have taken place since those of 1919, and all have a common theme. One of the other riots that we take note of is the Notting Hill Race Riots. Within a few years of the Empire Windrush docking in Tilbury in 1948, hostility towards Caribbean migration was growing. The violent attacks on the growing community came to a head with the Notting Hill Riots. On the 29th of August 1958, a Swedish woman married to a Jamaican man was verbally assaulted by a group of white youths following an argument she'd had with her husband at Latimer Road Station. The next day she was recognised by some of the group and that evening a mob of over 300 youths attacked the homes of West Indian residents and began rioting. The riots continued every night for nearly two weeks. The devastation and civil unrest outraged the residents of the West London area. And to ease the tensions, activist Claudia Jones organized an event to be held annually called the Caribbean Carnival, the first of which took place on January 30th, 1959. That carnival grew and became known as the Notting Hill Carnival. In 1963, the Bristol Omnibus Company was operating an unofficial color bar. Four West Indian men Roy Hackett, Owen Henry, Audley Evans and Prince Brown formed an action group that they went on to call the West Indian Development Council. These four men had been inspired by Rosa Parks and the Montgomery Bus Boycott in America of 1955. The men called a press conference and announced that not one of the city's West Indian communities would be using the bus service. The boycott was supported by many of the white community and drew national attention to racial discrimination In turn this gave rise to the first incarnation of what we now call the Race Relations Act, which outlaws discrimination on the grounds of colour, race or ethnic or national origins. In the 1960s, politics wasn't adverse to using racial propaganda to win votes. In 1964, MP Peter Griffiths famously said, if you want a nigger for a neighbour, vote Labour. 25 Tory MPs walked out of the House of Commons after then-Prime Minister Harold Wilson referred to Griffiths as a parliamentary leper. They claimed they were hurt and upset by Wilson's use of disgusting, insulting and defamatory language towards a fellow Briton. The 60s was also the time that Enoch Powell would deliver his rivers of blood speech, and the political National Front Party would gain momentum and following from its anti-immigrant rhetoric. On the 9th of August 1970, 150 people protested and marched on a local police station near Notting Hill. This was against the repeated raids on the black-owned and operated Mangrove restaurant. Violence between the police and protesters led to nine people being charged with incitement to riot. During the 55-day trial, police persecution of Notting Hill's black community exposed the institutional racism in policing. Judge Edward Clarke made history when he openly acknowledged that there was racial discrimination and wrongdoing by London police. The suspected persons law was created in the 1824 Vagrancy Act. It gave officers powers to arrest anyone they suspected of loitering with intent to commit an arrestable offence. In the 1970s, Public panic over the increased number of muggings saw mainly black men being stopped and searched under this act. This action of stop and search is still used today and black people are ten times more likely to be stopped and searched than white. Three in every thousand white people were stopped and searched during 2017-2018. Compare that to the 29 in every thousand who were black. Between April and July of 1981, riots took place across Brixton, Hansworth, Chapel Town and Toxteth. In all four disturbances, racial tensions and social-economic disadvantages played a huge part in the community's rioting. Suss laws were being used on young black males at a disproportionately high rate, while work opportunities for ethnic minorities were at an all-time low. The riots stunned Britain and triggered the government into putting forward schemes designed at helping putting young people into work. As a direct result of these riots, the Youth Training Scheme or YTS for School Leavers was developed. The mainstream media has also got a history of showing a prejudicial view against the black community. In 1981, following a fire believed to have been started by a white supremacist group in South East London, which killed 13 people aged between 14 and 22, a group of black activists peacefully protested the lack of action to bring about justice. They protested and marched between Fordham Park and Hyde Park. They carried placards that read, 13 dead, nothing said, and Blood are gonna run if justice no come. Despite the peaceful march, the next day, the Sun newspaper ran an article with the headline, The Day the Blacks Ran Riot in London. On the 22nd of April 1993, teenager Stephen Lawrence was murdered as he waited for a bus by a gang of racist youths. In response to his murder, in 1999 the 350-page McPherson report was published. It concluded the investigation had been marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership. A total of 70 recommendations were made, including measures to transform the attitudes and improve accountability in the civil service, the NHS, judiciary and other public bodies. A series of riots on the 4th of August in 2011 followed protests in Tottenham. The protests were as a result of the death of Mark Duggan, a 29-year-old black man who was shot and killed by police. The rioting and looting continued and started to spread across the country, lasting for two full days. Almost half a million people known as the Windrush Generation moved from the Caribbean to the UK between 1948 and 1973, with anyone who arrived before 1973 automatically being given indefinite leave to remain. The scandal of the Windrush Generation surfaced in 2017 after it was revealed that hundreds of people had been unfairly targeted, wrongly detained And sometimes deported against the backdrop of the government's hostile environment policy. The Home Office destroyed thousands of records and placed the burden of proof on individuals to prove they arrived in the UK before 1973. Their discriminatory treatment provoked widespread criticism of the government's failings with calls being made for radical reform of the Home Office and of the UK's immigration policy. A compensation scheme for the Windrush generation was set up In the first year, only 60 victims had received payments. Many entitled to the claims have died waiting for the government bureaucracy to process their claims with no facility to pay the compensation to their survivors. This year of 2020 has seen the world take to its feet and lobby governments over the unlawful killing of George Floyd. It took eight minutes and 46 seconds for him to die at the knee of an American police officer and his death has sparked one of the biggest movements to bring about equity for black communities around the world. Leaders from every corner of business, commerce and public service have been forced to hear the tens of thousands of voices of ethnic minority staff in their collective call for equality and equity. And it's working Many of you listening today have been compelled by the stories and the lived experiences of those shared by friends, colleagues and family members. By learning, listening and developing your understanding of the issues, you bring about change. You bring about a change in thinking that you can pass on to others and in doing so will slowly change the societal views, the racist views and the views of discrimination that people feel entitled to have. Sometimes everybody cries Everybody hurts Sometimes We can already see how the seven pillars are starting to form within the history of racism The dominance, the management the containment all clear and obvious through the times of slavery intellectuality humanity and reality are all evident as we move through the history as we see that black people were considered to be less intellectual than those of white that they were less capable of demonstrating humanity and the reality of their existence was decided by those who owned them by those who suppressed them erasure shows itself in the history a lot of what you've heard today isn't taught in schools universities or colleges as part of the everyday curriculum i know that growing up as a black child i wasn't taught any of what i've told you today instead i've had to go out and seek to understand my history giving you this insight and this snippet of the history that we have hopefully brings about a better understanding of racism, where it was formed, its view and where it fits in with our society today. Thank you for listening to this episode and being a part of the change. Join us for episode two, what racism looks like today.